You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Good to see you this morning. Thank you for being here, especially if you're our guest. Thank you for choosing uh, to worship with us. We'd love to get better acquainted with you after the service today. Um, We're going to be in John chapter 6 this morning, and so if you have a copy of God's Word, I would appreciate you joining me there, whether that's on your device or you have a physical copy there of God's Word. We're going to be in John chapter 6. While you're finding your place there, let me uh, just say real quickly that uh, echo kind of what Agrippa was saying uh, during our announcement time, that we are entering an incredibly busy season in the life cycle of our church. Uh, summer is fast approaching, which means uh, camp uh, for both students and kids. Uh, those both come early in June, uh, and then we'll be looking forward to missions trip to Wyoming, and then Vacation Bible School, VBS, and VBX, uh, which we'll do again this year, and so a lot of things coming. What that also means is that uh, a rather large percentage of our budget uh, is used in the summer, and so your giving is incredibly important. We don't say a whole lot about, uh, about giving, but I will just say that uh, God... Uh, that the funding for what God is doing here happens through the faithful giving of his people. Uh, and so if uh, that's not something that you've considered as a part of your discipleship, especially if you're a part of the First Baptist family, let me encourage you to, uh, to jump on board. Uh, you may not be aware that our budget is somewhere just north of, I think, $800,000 for the year, uh, which means it takes about $15,000, ish thousand dollars every week uh, to make that budget happen. And so everybody playing their part, uh, is how that that works, and so you can give online. There is an offering box on the way out uh, where you can drop an offering as well. And so let me encourage you in that. Uh, this is a crazy busy season for our staff. Griff mentioned we've got four staff kids graduating from high school this year. I think it's the first time that's ever happened. Uh, two of our kids are getting married, and we're still in disbelief that uh, we're in that phase of life. Uh, but uh, there is a lot going on, and so we're trying to squeeze everything in that we possibly can, plus try to get a little bit of time away uh, when we can. And so uh, we are so thankful for all that God is doing. And in the midst of all that, uh, we're looking at uh, the construction schedule over on Colin McKinney Parkway and all that that means, and strategizing and all the, the things that are necessary uh, to move to a new campus, Lord willing, in the fall. And so in our current sermon series, Person of Interest, we are now moving into chapter 6 of John's Gospel. And I want to remind you that uh, our plan right now is to finish John chapter 6 here by the end of May uh, and then take a little break from John's Gospel in the summer. And we'll do a summer in the Psalms. And we're going to look at uh, some different types of Psalms. Uh, There are Psalms of lament uh, and uh, there are Psalms of uh, rejoicing psalms of praise. So we're going to look at the different genres of, of psalms uh, over the summer, and then we'll return, uh, Lord willing, in the fall to uh, John's gospel and pick it up in John chapter 7. But uh, Jace did a great job last week of wrapping up chapter 5 for us, uh, and a, a great message called Glory Seekers. And uh, one of my favorite quotes from that message was, the transformation of the gospel is a restoration of our glory alignment. We become glory reflectors instead of glory seekers. So if you were not here last week, uh, I would encourage you to, uh, to go back and listen 
uh, to that podcast. They're finishing up chapter five. But this morning, we'll be in chapter six. Now, when I was a senior in high school, I think it was, we were asked to write an autobiography looking 10 to 15 years into the future. Uh, so we were to imagine ourselves at the age of 25 to 30-ish. And so um, as I was thinking back on that assignment, I wish I could find a copy of what I wrote. But I can assure you that I would shake my head now at how shallow and materialistic my life aspirations were at the age of 17 or 18 years old. Uh, And I have to wonder, how old were you when you realized that the things that you would often say you want most in life are not the same as the things you need most in life. Uh, We think we want good food. We think we want good rest and relaxation and peace and quiet. Or we think we want adventure and fun and excitement and entertainment and all that thing. But what happens when we actually get what we want many times? So often we're disappointed or worse yet, we become selfish and spoiled and entitled. And we learn that many of those things that we felt we needed the most actually bring little in terms of fulfillment. So how often have the unwelcome things, the inconvenient things, the hard things, the deeply painful things, have those been the very things that bring us to a place of utter dependence on God, draw us closer to Christ, teach us how to really pray? In this next section of John's Gospel, we find that the popularity of Jesus is arguably at an all-time high in many respects. His following is growing. But also we see that antagonism toward Jesus is growing. This is the only section in John's Gospel that actually narrates Jesus' later Galilean ministry, which gets a great deal of coverage in the Synoptic Gospels, uh, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, And Luke. And the importance of what we're looking at today, if you've already glanced at your Bible, you'll see that we're looking at Jesus feeding the 5,000. And what you have to remember anytime we study scriptures, it's our belief that we are studying together the inspired word of God. And when we look at a gospel, we're looking at really a biography of the life and ministry of Jesus. And it's often written in the form of a historical narrative. So this is not just like Uncle John spinning some tales for us, okay? Uh, you know, throwing, throwing some legend out there or anything like that. He's, he's giving us an account of actual historical events. And in this particular case, it's referred to as a sign. We've already talked some about uh, the signs of John's gospel. We believe that there are seven, some would argue eight. Uh, we've already looked at Jesus changing the water into wine at the wedding at Cana in Galilee. And, and so here we see that he miraculously feeds 5,000 men plus women and children. And so what is that really all about? There's a a purpose in all of this. So the importance of this is clear. In fact, the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 is the only miracle, apart from the resurrection, that is recorded for us in all four of the Gospels. Which is pretty unique because John doesn't usually cover what is recorded in the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, John doesn't tell us about the baptism of Jesus, for example. He doesn't tell us about the transfiguration. He doesn't tell us about the institution of the Lord's Supper. Uh, And so the synoptic gospels, that word synoptic means to see the same thing. And so they generally write about the same things from a uniquely different perspective. Okay, God uses, divinely, uh, sovereignly uses the personalities of these individuals as uh, as they're inspired by the Holy Spirit to write His Word. 
So John, John is, is considerably different from the other three Gospels in that regard. Uh, and so let's pick it up in, in John chapter 6, verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 15 today. I hope that you'll, you'll follow along there as I read. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Each of his, uh, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Anytime we study scripture, and particularly the genre of historical narrative, it's important for us to, to look at the key players in the narrative. So that's what I want us to do this morning as we look at this familiar account of Jesus feeding the 5,000. I want us to notice, first of all, the expectant crowd. And essentially what they were saying is, what will he do next? What will he do next? What kind of amazing thing is Jesus going to do next? You see, by the time we come to the beginning of John chapter 6, somewhere between six months and a year has passed since the time when Jesus was in Jerusalem in John chapter 5. And during this time, if you study the other Gospels, you, you, you see this, Jesus has been engaged in active ministry throughout this region called Galilee, teaching large crowds, healing sick people. And John doesn't cover very much of Jesus' Galilean ministry, again, probably because uh, he's writing his gospel later than the other three, the synoptic gospels, and he knows that most of his readers would already be familiar with much of the ground that they covered uh, there in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In John's gospel, the feeding of the 5,000 partly serves to set the context for his teaching later in this chapter on himself as the bread of life. Remember, we're also going to be looking at some I am statements in the Gospel of John. And one of those is, I am the bread of life. And so this contextually kind of sets up that teaching. But that's not the only reason that this story is here. It shows so much about Jesus' character and his power. And in addition to that, it shows so much about the expectations and hopes of the people. Thus, this expectant crowd, like, what kind of cool thing is Jesus going to do next? And if they had smartphones that day, surely they would have all had their phones out ready to, you know, to capture it and post it on social media or something. 
But there's this incredible disconnect between the agenda of the people and the kingdom mission of Jesus. And it's really clear, really from the opening verses through the concluding line of this passage. Again, it says, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. It would have been known locally, particularly as the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because, why? Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. This is not the kind of thing that you see every day. And so after spending some time in Galilee, Jesus crosses over uh, the Sea of Galilee with his disciples, perhaps to to spend some time alone away from the crowds, or perhaps just to, to set up the situation that would prompt this dramatic miracle. And a large crowd followed him. And you have to believe that Jesus knew they were going to follow. Putting themselves in unfamiliar territory, some distance from home in an area with a highly Gentile population. Why would such a large group of Jewish people be willing to follow a man such a distance into such an area? John tells us it was because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. This is some sensational stuff. Jesus was, uh, to be sure, a, 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 a remarkable miracle worker, one who did amazing signs. The people were fascinated, waiting to see what he would do next. They were partly testing him to see if he might indeed be the Messiah and partly also hoping for some personal benefit from him. They would in fact get both of those things from Jesus, though they would misunderstand the true significance of Jesus' actions. I think it's not a lot different today. Uh, And this whole text forces us to ask ourselves about how we approach Jesus. How do you look at Jesus? Do you, do you have kind of a utilitarian relationship with Jesus? Much like you would say a tool in your tool shed? I don't think much about that tool until I need it, and then, then I want to know where it is, right? And I think that's how some people maybe view Jesus. I don't mind having Jesus in the tool shed, so to speak, but I really don't want to give much thought to that until I actually need him for something. So it's kind of this pragmatic type relationship. What can I get from Jesus? What can Jesus do for me? How can he benefit my life? That's why particularly here in our Western world way of thinking, uh, you find fewer and fewer people are finding church beneficial. Because more and more, it seems, that there is less social benefit to people being involved in church, particularly in different parts of our country. You ask some people who are from the Pacific Northwest, for example, And they will tell you, unlike here in the Bible Belt, where we still have a kind of a sense of it's not uncommon for people to be involved in church. We're not perceived as being too terribly weird. okay? But in other parts of the country, you've been pushed to the margins already. okay? If you were involved, uh, particularly, I mean, really involved in the life of the church. It's a unique experience. And so you had people in that day, much like in our day, just kind of asking, what can I get out of Jesus? What can he do for me? So today, in our culture, you've got people who are kind of looking for a political Jesus, right? Jesus is going to make my political dreams come true. Jesus is going to do this for me. Jesus is going to, you know, uh, it's really at the very heart of what we would call the prosperity gospel. Because there's this belief out there in the prosperity gospel, which is really anti-gospel, that would say Jesus is really consumed with making your life on this earth better. Jesus didn't come and die just to make our life here on this earth better. 
He came ultimately to make us more like himself, like Jesus, uh, to reconcile us to holy God. And so you've got this expectant crowd asking, basically, what will he do next? And then I want you to notice the distressed disciples. And what they were saying in this moment was, we don't have enough. Uh, What we have is insufficient. It soon becomes apparent that this large multitude of people are going to need food. Now notice how carefully Jesus sets this up. By going up on a mountain with his disciples, he is ensuring that they will be able to see the full size of the crowd following them. And and we see record of that there in verses 3 through 9. Sat down with his disciples. It tells us it was the, the time of the Passover, the Feast of the Jews. And lifting up his eyes, it says there, then seeing a large crowd was coming to him, he then said to Philip, and you can know this, anytime Jesus asks a question, it's not because he lacks knowledge of something. Now, I ask a lot of questions. And more often than not, it's because I genuinely don't know the answer, okay? I, 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 I need to know the answer to something. Jesus never lacks information or lacks knowledge, and so John makes it clear to us that he asked this to, really to test Philip. And Philip's response is interesting. He says, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little And that's where we have this narrative that Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy, and you kids are in the room today, so pay attention to this. There's a boy in the story, okay? And the word that's used in the original language would tell us that he was a fairly young boy, okay? Wasn't very old. I know there are a lot of different words in the original language of the Bible that would indicate kind of the age range of of a child. Sometimes it's translated in the English as child when it's probably more like a teenager, older. The word that's used here would tell us he's probably a pretty young boy, the same age as some of you. And he had a lunch. And, And by all accounts, he was willing to give up his lunch. It wasn't like they said, here, kid, come here, give me your lunch. I think he was willing to give it. So you may think, I, I, I don't have much to offer. I'm just a kid. But you've got to realize, Jesus can use just a kid. I mean, if he uses the foolishness of preaching, which Scripture tells us he does, then you just think about what he can do with all of our insufficiencies. And how many times have you sat on the sidelines of ministry thinking to yourself, but I just don't have anything to offer. I'm not as gifted and talented as so-and-so. I don't have all the answers like so-and-so. I can't teach like so-and-so. Are you willing to let God take all of your insufficiencies and limitations and do something with it? Because that's kind of what we see here. And again, John tells us this is, it's, it's Passover. Uh, if the healing of the man at the pool of, uh, uh, in Jerusalem there at Bethesda took place at Passover, then this was likely a full year later. Okay, so this would make this Jesus' third Passover in ministry. John chapter 2, John chapter 5, and now here in John chapter 6. He would only have one more that's recorded for us in John chapter 12 and 13, his final Passover. And much of the language in this passage is echoing the language of Moses. Don't ever think that we should somehow separate the Old and New Testaments. Because I'm going to tell you something, Jesus is all through the Old Testament. Okay, what you see pictured in the Old Testament uh, is, is personified in Jesus. Okay, many would say this whole passage is about Jesus being the better Moses. The better Moses, right? 
And so uh, uh, much of that language is found here in this particular text. But notice that Jesus has led this large crowd of people into the wilderness, gone up on a mountain, and will soon supernaturally provide them with food. And so Jesus asks his disciples a question that he knows. Not only does he know the answer to it, but he knows they're not going to be able to answer it. So where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He wants them to see the impossibility of the situation in front of them and the total inadequacy of their own resources. How often have you, like me, I'm trusting this morning I'm not the only one, have you found yourself slow to take a particular need to the Lord because you wanted to try to figure it out on your own? And it was only after you realized, I can't do this. I don't have what it takes. My resources are grossly insufficient. I, can't. I think I'll go to the Lord. I think one of the things that Jesus was wanting to teach his disciples here is that you many times are inadequate. Your own resources. Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get even a little. Now that amount, 200 denarii, represents about eight months or somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 days wages uh, for a working man in that day. And in Jesus' day, most of a working man's income, his money, was spent to provide for his family, to feed his family just for their physical needs. So the crowd has 5,000 men, we're told, besides women and children. So it's probably somewhere around 5,000 families. So that means that 200 denarii would provide enough food for about two to 300 of these families, not even enough for everyone in the crowd to get a little bit, to get a little bit. Now, Philip's precise response of 200 denarii is probably an indication that this was the total amount of money that the disciples had in their treasury, you might say. And, and probably that seemed like a a decent amount of money to them for their needs and, and, and what they were trying to accomplish. They probably thought they were doing pretty well until Jesus confronted them with this real and pressing need that far outstripped their resources, which suddenly seemed pathetic. Now, Andrew comes in and he echoes the hopelessness of the situation by telling Jesus about a boy who was willing to give up his lunch, but it's only five barley loaves and two fish. Now, barley loaves were cheaper than wheat. And these are probably more like what we would call today a biscuit. I don't know about you, but I like biscuits. I like biscuits and gravy, right? We're talking about, we're talking about five biscuits, really. Whenever you see the word loaves translated here in the English, we many times think of like, like a loaf of bread. That's probably not what was in the boy's lunch. I mean, think about it, right? Mama packs the boy's lunch. Probably not putting five like full loaves of bread in, you know. Um, and so probably more like five biscuits, if you can think of it that way. The fish were probably small salted fish intended to be more of a side dish. And so they have these five cheap biscuits and two sardines, as it were. Andrew was right to ask, what are they for so many? What in the world can we do with this? This is insufficient. You see, sometimes we find ourselves in desperate situations where the need of the moment is far beyond our available resources. Aren't those the times when we truly and earnestly learn what it is to depend on the Lord? To pray. 
problem is the disciples don't pray here. They don't. They just don't know what to do. But Jesus is going to pray. And when Jesus prays, you better know something's going to happen. So I want you to notice, thirdly, the satisfying Savior. If we're looking at the different characters that are in play here in this drama kind of unfolding for us that John has, is telling us about, you, you've got to see front and center is the satisfying Savior. And in the midst of this incredible situation, what is he saying? He's saying, gather up the leftovers. Gather up the leftovers. Have the people sit down. Much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Then he took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he gave thanks for those meager provisions before the miracle even happened. And then he tells them, gather up the fragments. Notice some things about Jesus' action. Okay, he had the people sit down. There plentiful grass in the area because it was Passover, springtime. Had them sit down so they would be, be organized. The distribution could be orderly. This was not something they were going to, to do. This meal was going to be provided for them. We don't know with certainty how many people there were total. But again, the fact that Jesus could lead and organize 5,000 men is pretty significant. This crowd could have easily, quickly been transformed into an impressive people's army. So Jesus then took the loaves and the fish and gave thanks. And notice he thanked God publicly before he distributed the food. His thanksgiving probably sounded something like this. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. The traditional thanksgiving for the fish would have been uh, very interesting. Coming from the lips of Jesus, Blessed are you, Lord our King, King of the universe, by whose word all things came to be. <laughs> the word, Jesus himself, thanking the Heavenly Father, King of the universe, by whose word all things came to be. How rich is that? And we're told twice that everyone ate as much as they wanted. And they ate until they were full. Now, a lot of health experts would tell us that there's a point in a meal, for example, when you should probably stop. Have you ever been to that point? They tell us it's that moment when you, like, you feel this sudden need to just kind of take a big, deep breath. You know where you, like, like you've eaten a lot, like at, a, at Huck's, for example? Okay, think about your favorite buffet. Okay, and it's like you just kind of go... <sighs> they tell us that's the point at which you should stop. Okay, please tell me I'm not the only one who's blown right past that, okay? Like, I'm just like, I'm just getting my second wind, right? Like, I'm going to get my money's worth out of this, okay? These, these people were filled. They were completely satisfied. It wasn't as if anybody left that day going, this would have been an amazing experience if I could have just gotten a couple more pieces of fish. That, that wasn't the case. So then Jesus tells his disciples to gather up the leftover pieces. All of the accounts, the gospel accounts that we have of the feeding of the 5,000 are specific in telling us that there were 12 large baskets full of leftover pieces collected. These baskets were probably uh, wicker baskets, probably made of woven reeds. They probably held somewhere in the neighborhood of a half a bushel each. But it's the number of baskets and not the capacity of the baskets that's most important. Twelve is the number associated in Scripture with the people of God. 
There are 12 tribes of Israel. There are 12 apostles, 12 baskets full, symbolizing uh, enough for all the people of God. His provision is abundant. It's abundant. Everyone is satisfied. There's enough left over to symbolize provision for all the people of God. Nothing goes to waste. Jesus is not being wasteful. He wants the leftovers collected so they can be eaten. But he's also not stingy. He's generous. And he meets the need generously in a way that shows his amazing, abundant power and provision. But even in that, I want you to notice finally number four today. The misunderstanding multitudes. And they were saying, here is our prophet king. Our king. Now don't miss what's happening here. The multitudes who have gathered for this mill, they're thrilled. They respond ecstatically. When the people saw the sign that he had done, John tells us, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. It's a very specific reference to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. When Moses, at the end of his life, told the people of God, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Over the centuries, this prophecy from Moses came to be seen as a messianic promise. The promised prophet was the promised Messiah. The credentials of Jesus as the prophet were only strengthened in the eyes of the people by the remarkable similarity between this miraculous sign and a miracle done by Elisha, one of the greatest of the prophets of God. And we find record of that in 2 Kings chapter 4. You may be familiar with the account. We're told there that a man came from Baal Shalisha bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, give to the men that they may eat. But the servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, listen to this, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them. And they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. You see the connection there? The barley loaves, the leftovers directly echoed here in Jesus' miracle and this feeding of the 5,000. And yet Jesus' miracle was so much greater. So much greater. Elisha fed 100 men with 20 loaves of barley. Jesus fed 5,000 with five loaves. Five biscuits. And if this miracle proved that Elisha was a prophet, then you can rest assured Jesus was the prophet. The prophet was promised to be a prophet like Moses. So here, the expectation of the people was clear. If Moses led the people of God out of the bondage of Egypt and into the promised land, then surely this Jesus... This prophet, more powerful even than Elisha, could lead them to freedom from the Roman occupation and lead them to enjoy the full promise of the promised land. So the fact that it was Passover only clarified, cemented the expectations of the people more clearly in their minds. People want freedom and free food. (laughs) And in 2,000 years, we haven't changed much, have we? (laughs) Set us free from oppression and feed us and you'll have our loyalty forever. 
Jesus fully intended to set his people free and feed them, check this out, with the bread of life. With the bread of life. But he also knew that what they wanted and what they needed were light years apart. He was going to provide what they needed, but first he needed to deny them what they wanted. You see, what they wanted was a puppet king. That's what they were envisioning. This king, he's going to come and he's going to set up this earthly kingdom of which we'll be a part. And in this, he's going to overthrow our oppressors. He's going to overthrow Roman rule. Yay, Jesus. And Jesus is like, eh, hang on just a second. Slow your roll. You see, so often God must deny us what we want so that he can give us what we need. Let me say that again. Often God must deny us what we want so that he can give us what we need. We truly think that what we want is what we need, but God knows the difference. So our text ends with Jesus withdrawing again, this time completely alone. Not even his disciples are with him. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So Jesus sends the disciples off to cross the Sea of Galilee by themselves, leaves the people alone, bellies full but expectations unmet, unsatisfied. And I'll remind you that the next time he sees the disciples, he will show them even more clearly who he really is in a way that will leave them frightened and stunned. The next time he sees the crowd, he will tell them clearly who he is and it will shatter their expectations even more. This kingdom you want me to set up, that's not my agenda. (laughs) That's not my agenda. We'll see those encounters over the next couple of weeks, Lord willing. But I have to wonder today, have you seen the abundant goodness of God in your life? Have you seen how marvelously and powerfully he meets every true need with overflowing grace? If you haven't, could it be because your expectations of Jesus are so radically different from his priorities? His kingdom mission? You see, if there's a large gap between what you're expecting from Jesus and what he is actually committed to doing, then this is probably a good indication that an equally large gap exists between your felt needs and your actual needs. Or between your needs and your wants. That's why at the beginning of this message I asked, how old were you when you realized that the things you want most in life are often not the same things as the things you most need in life? Could it be that we still have not learned this lesson? You see, our greatest need is to be forgiven and accepted by God, to be reconciled to a just and holy God whom we have offended by our sin and from whom we have been alienated by our sinful nature and our active rebellion. So Paul says in Romans chapter 11, For all things are from him and through him and to him and to him be the glory forever. Yet we in our sinful nature and our act of rebellion are estranged from him and under his just condemnation. 
So we come to see and understand the abundant goodness of Jesus only when we see that this is our true, pressing, urgent need. And we also see how pathetically inadequate our own resources are at even beginning to meet this greatest need. We don't even have 200 denarii worth of righteousness in our own, in our own strength. We don't even have five cheap biscuits and two small sardines for thousands of people. And when it comes to our standing before a holy, holy God, we have nothing. We are bankrupt. Nothing but sin. Nothing but need. Nothing but lack. Nothing but guilt. And nothing but offense. That's it. And yet still today, people are thinking, well, if it's, maybe it's Jesus plus my best efforts. It's Jesus plus Mike trying to be a good guy. No, it's Jesus plus nothing that equals everything. This is the abundant goodness of our Savior. And that's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. the abundant goodness, the amazing grace of our Savior Jesus Christ. He does deliver us from true bondage and true oppression, and He does feed us with the very best of bread Himself. If you clearly see your need and you clearly understand your lack of resources to meet this need, then come to Him. Find Him to be abundantly good, fully able to satisfy. That's Jesus. And so my prayer for all of us this morning is the prayer that Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be, check this out, filled. Filled. Filled with the fullness of God. When we pray like that, God's pleased to answer that kind of prayer. Then we can sing and even together shout the doxology, the word of praise that Paul exclaims right after that prayer. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. He will satisfy what you truly need. If we could for just a moment bow our heads and close our eyes, I'm going to ask our deacons to go ahead and make their way to the back to begin preparation for observing the Lord's Supper today. As we prepare for that, you may be a guest today. You may be wondering, is it okay if I participate? And I would just simply tell you that we practice what is called a close communion and not a closed communion. It's not required that you be a member of First Baptist Church. 
It is important to us, however, that your testimony be one of faith in Christ. So as we begin even now to prepare our hearts before the Lord, I would simply ask you today, do you personally know of the abundant, amazing grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ? There's never been a time in your life when you acknowledged your sin before God. Turn from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ. Then I invite you to take that step of faith today. I would love to meet with you. love to open God's word with you and share with you how you can know. How you can know that you're in a right standing before God. Not based upon anything you've done or ever could do. But solely because of what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. Why should I gain from his reward? Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for your amazing, miraculous provision, not just in physical food, but in what that large multitude gathered there on that hillside that day truly needed. Lord, I thank you that you have not come to just satisfy our temporal longings, our earthly wants and desires, but that you, in yourself, fulfill, completely satisfying all that we truly need. So Lord, we thank you. We praise you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.